0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7 a.m. Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that early pages of a novel or story are really difficult to get right, so this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, we hear from Vivi Gadishanathan, also known as Sugi, and she is going to share her first pages of her latest novel, Brotherless. Night, which just came out in January. Good morning, Sugi. Good
1: morning, Michelle.
0: Thank you so much for being on the show. Sugi is the author of the novels, Brotherless Night, A New York Times Editor's Choice, and Love Marriage, which is long listed for the Women's Prize and named one of the year by the Washington Post, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard, Yaddo, McDowell, and the American Academy in Berlin, have all awarded her fellowships. She teaches at the MFA program at the University of Minnesota, and she also co-hosts the fiction nonfiction podcast on Lit Hub, which is about the intersection of literature and the news. So I would check that out as well. There's also a lot more to her bio that you can find on the uh, podcast notes. She's done a, a lot of amazing things. All right, Sugi, um, can you give us a quick summary of the book Brotherless
1: Night? Sure. Um, So Brotherless Night is about the early years of the Sri Lankan Civil War, and it's told in a first-person retrospective narration from the point of view of a woman who is in 2009 at the end of the war, recalling her teenage years um, in northern Sri Lanka in the city of Jaffna, where as a almost 16-year-old, she was trying to get into medical school, which is around the same time that the war is sort of beginning to beginning to emerge. Um, And so yeah, the novel starts in 2009, with her looking back on that period of time. And in the 1980s, she's the fourth of five children, and the only girl in her family. And so she watches as her brothers are swept up in different kinds of violence, and has to decide how she herself will handle her medical aspirations, and also her political choices, and, and also just her family relationships because her brothers are picking to are choosing to do different things that she doesn't necessarily agree with um as are some of her friends yeah. so um that's then the novel covers sort of the first 10 years of the war
0: wonderful okay good so she's going to read to us um there are the link on the podcast notes and on the Substack page where you can find these pages to follow along. Um, and the, the random house link doesn't have the prologue, but it's only a, a few paragraphs, but I'm asking her to read the prologue. Now, what's really interesting, Sugi, I've had about, I've done about 10 interviews out of the 40 that we're doing this uh, summer. And the majority of them have used prologues. <laughs> and quite a few of them have also had a you or uses of of you in that prologue and you're doing it a little bit differently um, than the others we've seen. So we'll talk about that, but why don't we hear these first pages from you?
1: Sure. Um, All right, brotherless night prologue, New York, 2009. I recently sent a letter to a terrorist I used to know. He lives near me here in New York City. And when I opened the envelope and slid in the note that said, I would like to come and see you. I thought of how much he had always required of me and how little I had ever asked of him. Even when I was growing up in Sri Lanka, before I had ever heard the word terrorist, I knew that if a certain kind of person wanted something done, I should comply without asking too many questions. I met a lot of these sorts of people when I was younger because I used to be what you would call a terrorist myself. We were civilians first. You must understand that word, terrorist, is too simple for the history we have lived, too simple for me, too simple even for this man. How could one word be enough? But I am going to say it anyway, because it is the language you know, and it will help you to understand who we were, what we were called, and who we have truly become. We begin with this word. But I promise that you will come to see that it cannot contain everything that has happened. Someday the story will begin with the word civilian, the word home. And while I am no longer the version of myself who met with terrorists every day, I also want you to understand that when I was that woman, when two terrorists encountered each other in my world, what they said first was simply hello, like any two people you might know or love. Chapter 1. The boy is with the Jaffna eyes. Jaffna, 1981. I met the first terrorist I knew when he was deciding to become one. Kay and his family live down the road from me and mine in one village of the Tamil town called Jaffna in Sri Lanka. The Jaffna Peninsula is the northernmost part of the country. Many people have died there some killed by the Sri Lankan army in the state, some by the Indian peacekeeping force, and some by the Tamil separatists, whom you know as the terrorists. Many people, of course, have also lived. In early 1981, I was almost 16 years old. I already wanted to become a doctor like my grandfather, and I had recently begun attending my brother's school where girls my age were accepted for advanced level studies. In those days, I thought mostly about the university entrance exams. K, too, dreamed of medical school. And this was what made us alike, long before K chose the movement, long before I treated patients in a New York City emergency room, long before we became so different. K had the upper hand from the first, not because he was one year older or a boy, but because I was his patient. Our meeting was both gruesome and fortunate for me, On the day that we met, I was boiling water for tea. I had to use a piece of cloth to hold the pot's metal handle. But that morning, the cloth slipped, the handle slipped, and the pot slipped, pouring scalding water all over me. I screamed and screamed for my mother, Amma, my shrill voice carried out onto the road where Kay was passing. Letting his bicycle fall in the dirt at our gate, he ran inside. By the time he reached me in the kitchen at the back of the house, Ama had already found me. As bubbles rose and popped on my skin, I shut my eyes, but I could hear her sobbing and the sounds of pots and pans clattering to the floor. With every clang, heat flared around and inside me. Under my skin, another skin burned. I cried and called for Murhan, Palaer, Shiva. Sashi, he said, and I opened my eyes to his face without recognizing it. Sit, he said, and pointed to a chair. When I kept screaming but did not move, he grabbed my hands, pushed me down into the chair, and peeled my blouse up, bearing my scorched stomach. I heard Amma's ayo beside me as though she were speaking from a great distance. Snatching a bowl of eggs off the table, Kay began cracking them onto the wounds. I have to fetch water, Amma said, clutching a pan she tried to move past him. But he put his shoulders between her and the doorway. This will cool the burn, he said. She stood there uselessly. I stared at him, trying to focus on anything but the pain, and saw only his thumbs working in and out of the eggshells, scraping the slime of the whites cleanly onto the swelling rawness. He did it very swiftly, as though he had had a lot of practice, as though every scrap of egg was precious. My skin was so hot that even now, when I remember those quick and clever hands, and the slippery shock of relief... I cannot quite believe that the eggs did not just cook on my flesh. When the last one was cracked and steaming on my skin, Kay looked up at Amma. Are there more? She did not respond, still stunned. More eggs, he said. She blinked, then nodded. Good, keep covering the burn. I'll go for the doctor. When Kay returned with the physician half an hour later, the older man looked over the makeshift dressing with approval. It should heal, he said. You may not even have a scar. My own mother used to crack eggs onto burns. This is not the kind of medicine they teach in school. Whose idea was it? Kay glanced at me without saying anything. I crackled and sighed still. I didn't know what to do, Amma said softly. His idea, I said. So I began as Kay's patient, though he ended as mine.
0: Great. And so that last line, there's a lot of questions that you are stirring here for the reader. And that section ends with it um, too. We get this idea of her being case patient. And then he ended with mine that just drives us forward into the novel and keeps us asking those questions and wanting to know what's happens. Okay. You start in 2009. Now, did you always have this prologue in the book? I guess I did
1: always have that prologue in the book. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Did you have any problems with your editors about wanting to
1: keep the prologue? I didn't actually. I'm not sure that it was, (laughs) I'm not sure that it was always called a prologue. Um, Right. But it was always there. Right. I'm I'm not the best at writing in chapters. So sometimes I figure out where the chapters are later. Oh, okay.
0: And that's interesting. What, um, what's your process in doing that? Like, how do you then choose your chapter lengths?
1: Um, so I wrote a lot of this book out of order and had a lot of problems doing that for, because I think I was attempting essentially to avoid the problems of cause and consequence. Um, and then had a friend suggest that I should try writing it in order and then went back and and did that. And that made it much clearer. And that also made it very clear where the chapter breaks were. Because they often are, right? They have a chapter ending has like a note of finality, but it's also kind of throwing a grappling hook into the next chapter. And And so so when I would get to the sentence that did that, I would know that I was done.
0: Oh, great. Okay. Hmm. Um, But then you also had to deal with the cause and consequence that you were trying to avoid. I did. <laughs> so what happened there?
1: Um, I guess then I got very, I mean, I think I had avoided it for a while and then I, then I got very interested in it. And of course a lot of it is, um, I mean, it's a war, it's not very pleasant right. for the characters. Um, so, but it does sort of, I mean, it's, I mean, suspense and time are of course, intimately related and telling the story in order was actually a lot more suspenseful for all of the reasons that I already knew were the case for this particular story. There's enough suspense in simply the question of what happens next. I don't actually need the reader to be doing a lot of work to put together the timeline themselves. Right. That wasn't going to be a kind of puzzle making that was satisfying for a reader. The reader was just going to be wondering if the characters were going to live.
0: Yeah. Confusion is very different from curiosity. Yes. Yes. Um, And so you... What about the choice inserting in 2009? Because, okay, so the other authors that we've, um, that I've talked to so far, we've had a lot of prologues and a number of them have used these flash forwards or they've at least used a prologue that takes place in a different um, time time period. Sometimes I, I just had uh, one that was a flashback that set up all the stakes, um, which is basically what you're doing, because so that we fill in the in-between of what's happened between 2009 and the other date was uh, 1981. Why 2009? Because I think otherwise we might think, oh, this is contemporary.
1: Sure. Um, the Sri Lankan Civil War ended in 2009, and okay. there is action later in the book that occurs in that time frame, So it's not just a flash forward, um, but also a setup for what's to come. And when I first wrote that page, it was well before 2009. And um, it was probably the spring of 2004 is likely when it was. Um, so you can actually see, like, like, if you put that date line on it, it provides a lot of additional information for someone who might know the date. Right, Uh, and might understand its historical significance. It also actually isn't required for the understanding. It's only required that you know that it's considerably in the future. So so the date actually came later and the page was sort of just a standalone page that was Mm -hmm. always there.
0: Mm -hmm. Interesting that you wrote it before it actually happened, before that date became significant. Um, And then you have this wonderful first line well, it's it's a chilling first line. I recently sent a letter to a terrorist I used to know, and that word "terrorist" is has a lot of weight. Um, and I like how you're trying to hold the reader off and redefine the word um, and keep the reader with you, with us. Um, you do re- have a use of a "you" here now. In some of the other authors that we've talked to, the "you" has been a very specific "you" to. Another character in the book, but you seem to be referring to the reader here um, and the reader's own biases or thoughts about the word terrorist or their own understanding of the history behind this so who do you tend intend to be that you.
1: I think your analysis is correct, and so when that page when I wrote that page the you was in there, the first line was actually slightly different. Um, Although I think in its tone very similar Mm -hmm. so the you was a kind of generalized you. And I think when I first wrote it, I didn't know who the you was and it seemed like a generalized you. And then I tried actually making it a specific character. And then that character seemed like a special guest star from a different novel. And so <laughs> that character was brutally cut out. Um, she was a little bit Rosalind Russell-ish. Um, mm. from sort of like the, the reporter character from His Girl Friday. She was like very kind of snappy. Um, And she was a lot of fun, but she was, she just like, was not for this book. Um, Right. She just did not belong. So then it went back to being a more generalized you, but it also shifts throughout the book. And it makes space for a kind of narration that I think a lot of conversation about representation has to do with who the characters are, but it doesn't always have a lot to do with who the audience is presumed to be. Um, Yep. And so the narration ended up kind of making space not only for sort of representation in the most basic sense of chronicling this history that is not sufficiently told, um, not even sufficiently told, honestly, after the publication of this book, you could talk about this era really for a long time. Um, So it made space for this particular narrator. It made space for her irritation at being a person who has to explain a thing that she feels that she should not have to explain and it also makes room for her to interrogate her own assumptions about who the audience is at various points mm-hmm. she addresses the audience as though it's kind of a majoritarian audience by which i mean is it is it an audience presumed to be white and american and a set of people who couldn't possibly know about a world like this and then i also you know ended up realizing that i have so many memories of specific moments i was sitting in audiences And um, a work of art, often a work of art I really admired was addressing the audience as though it only included white Americans, which always made me feel that I was not there, Mm. Um, which was also a thing that annoyed me. And so thinking about asking her also to, to think about what her own assumptions about the audience actually were. So then there are parts where she doubles back and says things like, you know, I should, I should stop assuming I know so much about you. Maybe you actually know exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Good.
0: And when did you, when did you really focus in on who this you might be and, and not that other type of character that you found your, was working her way into the book um, that didn't quite fit the style of the story of the book. When did you figure that out in your revision process?
1: Mm the book took me a really long time, like maybe 18 years. And so somewhere maybe a little more than halfway through.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So pretty long.
0: It's so funny. If we work for these books for so long and then we have no idea, we, we almost block out. It's like having a child. We block out (laughs) the most difficult parts of, uh, of the revision process and what it used to be, and it becomes only what it is. Um, So it's kind of hard to even talk about that process.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly, like a lot of that had to do with, right, I cut out a lot of scenes that happened in New York, that other people had expressed enthusiasm for the concept of those pages. But I think in actuality, I just wasn't that interested in writing those pages. And then, um, had my brilliant and kind editor say that I didn't have to have them. And, um, that gave me sort of a great freedom and I joyfully lopped them off and was sort of like, goodbye, hundreds of pages, no one misses you. And so that was very freeing and a lot more enjoyable, um, to return to the pages that I realized I cared a lot more about.
0: Good. And and following that instinct of what you're interested in or not um, and ignoring, I think, what other readers might say, no, I want more of this. No, I want more of this. Um, You do basically have to follow the story that you want to tell and not always the the story that your readers want to read. Um, And generally, though, too, when I face um, kind of a block and you talked about not wanting to work through those causes and consequences, I'll sometimes be like, well, that's because I'm not interested in it. Or that's because um, something in my instinct is telling me to go a different way. But you still knew that you had to go back to those causes and consequences because those were the heart of the book. But you found a way to be interested in it, right?
1: I think I was always interested in it. It just was a kind of, um... right, I mean, I think it was an avoidance of certain like I had spent a lot of time doing research. I was well aware of what the consequences were. Yeah. Um, but to invent them myself was like a different task that I wasn't sure that I think I maybe wasn't sure how to do it. And then also there's a lot of nonlinear storytelling about Sri Lanka, like Andachi is the obvious example um, mm-hmm. of a writer who writes sort of beautiful lyrical prose that isn't often isn't chronological. And I had always enjoyed reading him. And mm-hmm. um and I think that it, I had to think about, I don't know, just because you can enjoy reading someone's work and appreciate someone's work and it can still not be, the, not be offering you the right example for, your, for the different story that you're telling. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't think that there was, there was never a moment when I wasn't interested. It was more like a kind of resistance to, I mean, what is like often very violent material or yeah. material that's like um, graphic or unpleasant. And to make it a reading experience that simultaneously like contains all of that, which is very truthful, but also pulls the reader forward. Like, why would you want to read that? Um, and you know, what would make you want to read that? And And I think it's very easy to see why if I had set a huge chunk of the book in New York, People are always interested in New York. I'm interested in New York. I used to live in New York, um, which was how New York was in the book in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was very plain to see from sort of a, I don't know, a question of audience. Like there's a, if you say that a novel is set mostly in New York, it gets a very different set of readers. And Mm -hmm. so I think it wasn't just about following my own instincts. It was recognizing what my own instincts actually were, Um, because I think i I also was like, oh, and New York during that time period was, it had all of these different weird things in it that I think are worth writing about. They just weren't for this book. Right. Um, they just didn't fit with this particular story.
0: And then talk about violence. We get a much kind of smaller example of, well, at least an accident or, or pain in that, in that first scene of the first chapter that you named part of Near Invisible Scar, uh, which tells us that we're going uh, uh, back in time to something that remains with the main character still. Um, It's near invisible, but it hasn't gone away altogether. So I really love the title of that first section. And then we go into Jaffna, 1981. Um, I do love how you're drumming the word terrorist throughout um, making the reader um, deal with that word. And then we get the name Uh, for this character um, that you haven't named so far? You kind of didn't de- delay naming this character. Um, and that, that reminded me of Kafka and other writers of, of his time period. Why did you choose just the name K?
1: I think that um, for whatever reason, I had tried writing that character with a name and that for whatever reason didn't work it didn't seem realistic, weirdly. Um, It Mm -hmm. seemed less realistic with the name. And I think, um, of course, like it's it's work set in a former British Commonwealth country. And I think there's, right, there are literary traditions of certain time periods where you do refer to people, refer to characters by just their initial. So it was a way of kind of um, making him very specifically himself and also resisting perhaps a reader's urge to call him the same things that other characters are being called or to try and align him to a historical figure or whatever he was always that was the only way that I could move forward with the story was by strangely not naming him which also gave me the question of then why would she not name him which eventually is a question that's that's um that she addresses directly and um and also, write this word terrorist is used, um, which you asked about. And I was writing the first page very much in the shadow of 9-11, but I also come from this community where the word terrorist was lobbed at my community for a long time before 9-11. And to kind of watch other people pick up that language and widen its range and use it for all sorts of terrible things, um, I mean, I had spent a long time thinking about that language and what it did, and then had someone say to me during the course of writing this book that, you know, what did it mean, to, essentially, to talk about terrorism without talking about state terror, and found that right. to be a powerful statement. Um, not to say that we shouldn't hold people accountable for violent acts, but that states are, I mean, I think it's not hard to look around the world and find perpetrators of state terror. So to kind of ask people, ask that you, the you that is being addressed, like, you no, know, I see that you're using the, this language and I promise that one of the projects of this book is going to make you think about why. Good, good.
0: And then you have the scene where she has this terrible burn and Kay helps her. Um, did that scene come to you um, initially when you were working on in the 18 years ago when you think about when you started the book? um, Or did you have to search for that
1: scene? That scene existed from very early on. Uh, It wasn't always the first, I guess it was the first thing in the book and then Mm. it was moved later and then it was moved earlier and then it was moved later and then it moved back to the beginning. So it, um, yeah, it moved moved around a few times, but in, in terms of its actual sentences, it's pretty intact actually. Um, and like the actions of that scene the players in it are roughly like the same as they originally were
0: right and why did you want that particular scene with its particular content so you talk about the the particular players that are there we've got k we've got the the narrator and we've got the mother um but that kind of form of somewhat quieter form of violence opening the book up Um, but one that takes place on the domestic sphere um, and that is simply an accident. Why did you feel like you really wanted that to be in those opening pages? Because it sounds like you kept moving it later, but that kept tugging at you to move it back to the beginning again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess chronologically, maybe this could have happened later, but it is the moment that these two characters meet and that turns out to be very significant. So... It didn't seem like something, I mean, that's actually interesting. It maybe would be like a really interesting, maybe it would be interesting if they had met first and then this happened. Um, That would lend a different kind of tension to the scene. But I mean, they have met before because he's her brother's friend, but to this point, he has sort of belonged to her brothers and he hasn't had any particular connection to her. And then there's this moment of kind of medical need. And so it speaks to, their respective ambitions and something having to do with kind of competition between them or parallel kind of parallel lives that will right we know that their lives will diverge um and then also I mean just sort of on the most basic level if one of the inciting events for the novel is that they meet then I knew that that was going to have to be one of the first things and so like once I made the decision to tell the novel in order tell the story in order it had to be first um, the mother's role in that scene changed a little bit. Uh, yeah. She ends up being someone who in this scene doesn't know what to do and right. is sort of paralyzed by violence. And you see her character develop in different ways over the next 10 years as she faces more and more violence. So it's also, it I ended did end up tweaking it so that it would provide that setup.
0: Great, great. And then we have this uh, perfect, again, launch into the rest of the book. So I began as Kay's patient, though he ended as mine. Okay, I'm going to have to let Sugi go. So we're going to have to finish. I need to get all of our listeners back to their own writing desks. So everyone, you can find our full Passages of Summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two Writing challenges. We did a 50 day challenge last fall and a 30 day challenge in the spring. And there's lots of information out there for writers if you want to go back and find those. You can find those on the subsect page or on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review our podcast so that we can reach other writers. Okay, Sugi, one last question. What advice would you give to authors about their own first pages? That's
1: a great question. Um, I think that, I mean, I teach in an MFA program and I myself sat in many workshops and I think workshop is really important. Uh, And one of the reasons it's important is because the readers have to read to the end of what you've done, Um, sort of the contract. And in the real world, people don't have to do that. And that is something useful to remember that people can put your work down at any time. And that can be terrifying or it can be kind of an exciting dare And I think it took me a while to kind of get to the latter part of that, the exciting dare, but to think about it as a a thrilling challenge and and one that exists Um, for the reader who doesn't know you, who has no contract with you other than the one that you build with those first sentences, that was really helpful for me.
0: Excellent, excellent. And these pages are absolutely gripping but challenging at the same time. I'm just very excited for this book, so I hope that everyone tracks this book down. Otherwise, have a very good writing day and uh, get to your own first pages. And thank you again, Sugi, so very much for being with us this morning.